All of us at the pod are deeply saddened by the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. She was a huge advocate of football as a sport and part of England's greatest sporting success of all time. Rest in peace, Your Majesty. Welcome to episode 36 of the Football Shirt Show. Slightly different format this week. We've got the usual news. We're going to go over quiz rather than kit history. And of course, we've got your favourite shirt room 101. But very excitingly, we've also got an Admiral feature coming up. So stay tuned for that. Right, who's joining me today? Uh, it's Mike, Footy Shirts. And Tom at Shirt Fan. How are you both, gentlemen? I'm all right. I'm all right. It's uh, got a long weekend ahead of me. So spend some time with the kids. Should be fun. Hey. <laughs> I've had a pretty uneventful week, you know, just uh, musing over the madness that is Chelsea Football Club. So that's pretty pretty much dominated my week. At work and at home? Both, yeah. Work and play. Chelsea all day. Through <laughs> your job, then, Tom, because I know obviously you shared on Twitter that you, you work for Sky Sports. Have you, have you ever got to meet any footballers through through this job? Is he, you know, you bumped into John Terry walking through the halls down there somewhere? Not not John Terry, but yeah, we we do get different people every day. I was shocked to discover that I was sat next to Dean Ashton this week because I didn't recognise him because he's bald now. So last <laughs> time I remember seeing him, he had hair, so I I, I didn't recognise him. Yeah, pre- I mean, pretty much all the guys you see on the TV, you kind of see him in the canteen and over coffee or whatever. Um, the only one I've been a little bit starstruck by was uh, Jody Morris. But I did say to him, do you remember, Jody, uh, when I, as a five-year-old, I approached you at the cash point in Epsom High Street and you signed the back of a stamp for me. So that's a nice little... <laughs> do you remember that? Because, yeah. I mean, that's pretty memorable. Like, did you remember that? <laughs> he did. He said he did. He did say he did. He used to share a house with John Terry in Epsom at the time when they were both kids. Until he got a girlfriend, he thought he'd better move them both out. <laughs> Is I think meet, meeting footballers is, is such a thing. I remember my my dad's a Liverpool fan, so I grew up in a Liverpool sporting house. Um, but fair play to my old man. He as as a kid, he uh, he took me up to the villa a few times. And the first game I ever went to, we were queuing, waiting to uh, get our tickets from the ticket office, and I felt a little tap on my shoulder. I thought, Who's that? Then I turned around, and it was Dwight York. So for my first ever game, I actually met Dwight York outside Villa Park. And my dad took a photo with him and he's the world's worst photographer and cut his head off from just above his eyes in the photo. <laughs> from what I've read and the accounts that Jordan gave, he hasn't got a little tap. <laughs> that was quick because my brain was racing to try and get a Dwight York, York gag in there. But <laughs> So we've got no Scotty this week, gentlemen. Wrong answers only. Where is he? <clears throat> Who knows? With all the things going on, you know, the... When you're doing things like I don't know what secret service it is he works for or whatever, he's obviously been called up somewhere, hasn't he? I've heard he's in Europe of the Eastern persuasion with a, a, a locked and loaded sniper rifle, but there's just, just things I hear. We'll draw a line then to that, shall we, Scott? We hope you return safely one day and maybe you'll be with us for recording next week. For now, on to this week's news. So in the news this week, gentlemen, I think the biggest noise out there is around Vasco da Gama's new shirts. I uh, yeah, I mean they look magnificent to say the least. They're they're great. I do understand that there was a bit of confusion at first because everybody was tweeting about how 
they'd released all three of their new kits almost in play and they were home away in a third but i understand one's the, the is it the home kit and the other two are goalkeeper kits is that is that right yeah um but i mean as a set they look incredible regardless of who's wearing them on the pitch just brilliant and i think as um pedro that everybody knows on twitter the pedronator would has said uh, everything that the new Portugal kit should have been, really. Yeah, I agree. They're, they're beautiful. They're a great example of, of Kappa doing what they do best. But that, again, I'm not entirely sure. I haven't looked into it enough to know what, what kit is what. But yeah, that one that looks like what should be a Portugal shirt, whether that be a goalkeeper shirt or not, is the pick of the bunch. It's absolutely stunning, I think. So Google Translate is what I turn to. And it looks like the off-white shirt is the third shirt. Right, and the two other kits, the black one and the red one, are both goalkeeper shirts. Also, that white one, the white, black, and gold, is that not just a much better version of that Monero map shirt? I know it's not got a map on it, but it's just like a, a classier version of that shirt. I think. I think it's wonderful, and some of the design features in this are just it's just incredible. I mean, I, I think all of us have made a lot of noise about Macron over the last six months and been blowing their trumpet, but this is just a reminder that Kappa really are the kings of football shirts still. The kit itself is a tribute to their stadium, which is celebrating an anniversary. It's in the tweet, I can't remember how many years it is. might be 60, might be 75, um, but the whole shirt's paying tribute to that. So everything from the gold detailing on the badges to do with a gold statue outside the unique jacquard pattern is to do with the tiling inside the stadium and the really nice touch it's got as well as it's got the coordinates of the stadium on the um down the forearm of the sleeve and it's also got them running down the shorts as well stuff like that's just magic because it just it all ties together really well those coordinates they're they're really interesting because they're only on the long sleeve versions of the shirts is that right not on the short sleeve no but they're on the shorts as well for the ah, kits. Right. so yeah and uh just see, seeing as as you've already touched on we don't have a kit history this week because i've been you know, a little bit too lax in my research for this week there's a little bit with this one just for anybody because i did see a couple of tweets uh, sort of like asking why there was so much of a portuguese influence on vasco da gama shirts so just in case anybody is confused about this, Vasco da Gama was a Portuguese explorer. So that's where the name comes from. And the club itself was actually founded as a rowing club by Portuguese immigrants and still has an extremely large Portuguese fan base. So just in case anybody's confused as to why, that's that's why. Have we got a favourite Vasco da Gama player amongst us? What, current? Just generally. I think from a kit hit tweet we did the other week, didn't Romario and the two Janinos both play for them at the same time in the early 2000s? I think they did, yeah. Janino squared. squared. And don't forget Bobetto. Bobetto and Edmondo, who also was of Fiorentina. So that's a that's a kit career that man had. The good news of being based in Rio, at least Edmondo had less uh, travel to do to the carnival and back with Petri and Panzi. <laughs> See, for someone that's not informed, what is the story of the pet chimpanzee? I think there's a bigger story now. I mean, so so we just partied with a chimpanzee at the carnival and like gave it cigars and gave it alcohol to drink, I think, which is not very 2022, but was perfectly acceptable in 1998. And then he got back to Fiorentina like three weeks late or something. But he had a clause in his contract that said he was allowed to go to the carnival every year. And I've I've done far worse on nights out before as well. So yeah. and woke up with far worse as well. As good a footballer as he was, perhaps we shouldn't follow all of his lifestyle choices. No. Anyway, Jen, so any of those kits going on 
any of your lists for this season? Uh, do you know what? I, as, as much as I like them, and I think they're all really, really good. I think that they're, I, I think the problem for me, in honesty, is is if I put every single brilliant kit onto a wish list, it would be never ending. So as much as I think they're brilliant and they're up there in three of the best shirts I've seen released so far, probably won't go onto my list unless they just pop up by accident somewhere. Yes, yeah, same like, for me. I, I like them, but like everyone, I do have to kind of limit my purchases and they probably wouldn't be on that list unless they turned up for a few quid in a charity shop somewhere in, I don't know, Chiswick. Well, like a pubescent teenager, we don't want things popping up by accident anyway, do we? Speaking of new shirts, I don't think we've covered this off, given it's a light news week. New releases this season. What shirts are you going to buy? Give me one or two, Mike, that you definitely are going to go out and get during the course of the next 12 months. Oh, no, there's a question. Obviously, we, the easy ones for me to say are the new buy-in shirts, because uh, as we always say, the curse of the collector, they've, they've got to be, but... I don't know. Do, do you know what? It's, it's really weird. I think I collect probably a little bit differently to a lot of people because as much as with Bayern, I know I will get them. With Aston Villa, I know I will get them. I don't tend to buy an awful lot when A, they're full price because I'm way too much of a tight bod. And B, I love the the idea of not knowing what I'm going to pick up. So I, I enjoy seeing all of these new releases coming out. I love talking about them on the pod. But I think as the season goes over, my opinion on a lot of them changes. And one thing I find is when I have kind of rushed out a little bit and grabbed a couple new, like I'll use one as an example, um, the Inter uh, third shirt, the sort of like Nike reboot of the grey and black striped one. I still love it, but I don't love it as much as I did when I thought I did when I bought it, if you know what I mean. And and it's I've still got it because I don't, I don't get rid of my shirts. But I, I think... I'm, as much as, as I could sit here and make an enormous list, I think it will probably be as much of a surprise to me which shirts from this season I buy as it is to anyone else. An opportunistic person. Yeah. Tom, come on. I know you're going to have one or two to, to give me his answers. Yeah, I've got a couple already that I bought almost straight off the bat. But I, I do agree with Mike a little bit. I think even even at this point, there are some shirts on release. I thought, yeah, want that. 100% want it. But my enthusiasm has dulled for them already. So I think in a way there will be some that I pick up through the course of the season because they have moments, you know, like a good Champions League run like Benzema last year or something. Something like that will influence what I buy. But the ones I've got already, I've got the, the Lazio home shirt, which Mizuno's, <laughs> Mizuno's made an effort, which I just think is a really smart kit. Um and I have ordered the Spezia third that we spoke about last week. Uh, the Barcelona away shirt, I bought that. They got the gold in the the uh, the dry foot advanced is, is is beautiful as a shirt, I think. Um, but that Barcelona home was one I thought I would pick up as soon as possible. But again, the enthusiasm has died off a little bit. So I might take stock now I've got those three or four and, and wait a little now. Is there any you've got your eye on, AD? Uh, a few. I mean, yeah, you've very kindly sorted me out when you're away in terms of the Spezia third shirt thank you Tom uh, I've got that on the way and I'm very excited about getting that not only from the colourway and the pat, you know everything but actually the pattern in that shirt looks amazing it looks like the fabric actually matches the paint stroke so I am really excited for that the other shirt that I had arrived today actually was the Spal home shirt I know a lot of people made a bit of noise about it and I think probably some of the mood for that shirt maybe has dampened, but had the opportunity to pick up a match one version of it for not a lot more 
than actually the shirt would cost to go and buy because I think it's about 70 or 80 quid anyway to go and get the shirt at the moment. But I've got it fully sponsored, patches, name set, uh, match worn from, I can't remember which game it was, but um, yeah, it's a beautiful shirt. Just just thinking about it, I think there, there are actually a couple of others I could say that I would definitely get at some point, even if it is more the beginning of next year or something. But the, the new Germany home and away, the more I look at them, the more I just think they are absolutely stunning, just brilliant shirts. And again, the, the Mexico, um, I think both the home and the away look amazing. And I kind of have a little look through Mexico shirts over the last few years. And I, I they've, they've released some brilliant, brilliant shirts. And I'm starting to love that, that how, how much they mix their, their home shirt up a little bit, bringing in the black and pink on the one previous to what they got now. A couple of months ago, I picked up the the black one they had previously for that. I think it was for the uh, the gold cup that they they wore in that one. So I think yeah, Me- Mexico and the Germany. I'll probably stick my neck out and say those three as well as my usual Bayerns and Villas will definitely be picked up at some point. Yeah, the the those Adidas World Cup shirts actually those Germany ones and a few others definitely on my list but I think I'm going to wait for January when they might be a little bit cheaper once the World Cup's been and gone and also I forgot nearly forgot but the Como shirt this year as well is definitely on the list very much so Tom very much so right the only other bit of news I had this week was just scrolling through the internet and apparently breaking news uh, yesterday in fact was from footy headlines Castoria having issues with their quality. <laughs> oh, is this the one? Um, uh, I believe there was there was an image. Was it the Bayer Leverkusen shirt? The badge is literally flapping off in d- during the match. Was it that one? <laughs> it, c- it could have been. I think perhaps they're just a few weeks behind on the pod, and hadn't, they've been struggling since I blocked them from our Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, as I say, I've, I've definitely seen it a few few places previous to them, but, but yeah, they do always do stuff well. To be fair to them, but it's amazing how how much these. Uh, these bigger accounts and magazines and things like that magazine accounts copy off content from some of their followers and original people out there um but i didn't see any other news this week did any of you i was just going to say that i I don't think there's been a lot to be honest with you i think obviously the the kit releases are slowing down a little bit now um so everybody listening is just gonna have to put up with us waffle on about shit a lot more one thing i did notice i'm sure people will have seen on twitter too but kit kit mag Volume 4 is out, and I've noticed a lot of people that have never bought it before have started to buy it, so there must be something in the water on Twitter. Right, so that concludes this week's news. We have a very exciting feature for you this week about one of the most traditional manufacturers in the English football game. Who wants to introduce this week's segment? Yeah, so this week, me and Mike were really lucky to speak to Andy, who is the producer behind Get Shirty, the ITV documentary about Admiral. He also wrote the book, Get Shirty, The Rise and Fall of Admiral. Welcome listeners to this week's main feature of the pod and we have a really special guest and that man is Andy Wells. Now Andy is the filmmaker and documentary maker between the ITV documentary Get Shirty, the story of a Midlands sports manufacturer and he's also writing a book at the moment which will shortly be on the shelves called Get Shirty, the rise and fall of Admiral. So welcome Andy. Hi, good evening guys. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit firstly about the documentary film yep sure so i've been a documentary maker for about 25 years as a documentary maker, you're always looking for stories you're always looking for access around that time i've been doing quite a few um hard-hitting documentaries so i've i was sort of actively looking for something a bit lighter something i could enjoy so it started off as a 
passion project. I should say actually before we go too far is that I'm actually from Leicester and we used to when I was a kid we used to live in Wigston which is where the the, the factory was from so, so I kind of grew up knowing all about Admiral Sportswear and it kind of it was always there floating around the ether because I'm a Leicester City supporter you know different fanzines occasionally there'd be a piece or there'd be some photos do you remember the old Admiral kits oh they used to make those in the city so it's always been floating around and then I think there was a piece in one of the fanzines or a magazine and I was chatting to friends and we were talking about that first England deal, the, the Don Revy deal. And I just thought, you know, is there a, is there a film in this? Because it's quite an interesting story. But I hadn't really pieced it all together at that point. So I spoke to a friend and a friend said, well, you should talk to, to Neville Chadwick. And he was this legendary um, photographer. So you'd see him around the Filbert Street touchline. So I went to see him because somebody said, well, he photographed all their stuff. And all these kits that appeared in Shoot Magazine and, and Match, he, he photographed those. So I went along to see him. It took me along to his library. And it's extraordinary. So it's this massive archive. And he's just pulling out thousands of transparencies, prints. It's like the 1970s encapsulated, really. So we got chatting. I thought, well, this is, you know, this is kind of, this is nice. You know, this, it was almost like looking at my childhood, back at my childhood, the 70s childhood. So he said, well, you should talk to Bert. So Bert Patrick was the man who was, you know, who his company, Admiral Sports, was. So I phoned up Bert and um, he said, well, come and see me. I'm, I'm actually writing my memoirs. But I have to say, I, I mentioned in the book about um, Admiral, they had some outrageous good fortune in terms of their progression. And I think with the book and with the documentary I did as well, it just seemed yeah. all these different things seemed to come together at the same time. That was quite extraordinary. So go to meet Bert. He's a great guy, getting really well, good raconteur. He's got his memoirs coming out. So I think, well, you know, maybe there's something in this. So as I'm sort of doing my day job and I'm sort of working, I'm thinking I'd start doing this on the side as a passion project. So I call in a, a cameraman mate and said, because I was traveling up to Leicester all the time to go to the football and see my family. So we'd do a day's filming here, day's filming there. So one day we'd interview Bert, then we'd do Nev. And then I put an advert in the Mercury, the Leicester Mercury, and said, you know, anybody out there used to work at Admiral, you know, as part of the research. And the response was fantastic because it was one of the, the major employers around that area. Yeah. Lots of, you know, since they've been going since 1902. Three things, I suppose, came out of that. Because around this time, I was thinking it's nice little, you know, it could be a nice little short film for YouTube or something, you know, a little um, sort, of, sort of celebration of their kits. But I didn't think there was a proper story, like a proper documentary at that time. And then I met John Devlin who you probably know, you know, a football kit historian. True Colours, the author, True Colours. Yeah, absolutely. I did an interview with him and he just encapsulated and gave context to Admiral's place in the football kit world that I wasn't aware of. And so you think, well, that's, that's really good, actually. You know, they were pioneers. Mm. And then a couple of other things happened from the Mercury. One was uh, John Griffin, who, so he was the managing director. He's living in California at the time. He phoned me up. And we had this it was one Saturday, I always remember it was one Saturday night. I think I was on the phone for about two hours. And he just told me, and he just put meat on the bones of all these different stories. He just knew all the details, all the deals. Absolutely incredible. You're going, wow, this, and you know, basically, this was groundbreaking. These guys changed for, you know, the, the landscape of football. Because at that time, the commercial aspect was just in its infancy. And they just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And he, you know, gave me a lot of the, the history behind and firm and the deals. And then the other person who's significant in this story is um, a designer called Lindsay Jelly. So Lindsay um, responded to the ad, went, met her, and then we followed up with an interview. 
And it was one of those moments as a documentary maker where you're kind of not sure whether you've got a film or not. And we filmed this interview with Lindsay and she was amazing, absolutely incredible character. And we came out, went our separate ways and me and the cameraman just looked at each other and went, wow, we've got a film. <laughs> and all this time, this is, we're, I'm self-funding it basically. You know, I'm doing it my part time and I'm thinking, you know, th there is a film here. So the next thing to do was filmed a few more people, a few more interviews, and we put together um, a taster tape. And this is all, you know, an editor friend, so calling in lots of favours. And we put, he put together this fantastic sort of three, really tight three-minute trailer. Hmm. And another producer I met had good contact sports uh, broadcasting. So he was, um, he knew Niall Sloan, the commission editor for uh, um, ITV Sport. Sent Niall the, um, the tape and then followed it. said, what do you think, Niall? He said, no, no, it's not for us. Uh, really because it was a really good taste tape. you can and see the trailer on youtube as well i think i think that's still yeah you can, I think, there, you can see one you? of the versions there we had several i think at the end but yeah and it was the one cut to uh, to bowie's boys keep swinging right so we we had that and then he said you haven't watched it have you nile uh, no i haven't he says watch it so he says anyway puts the phone down and says and then you know three four minutes later nile picks up come and see me tomorrow morning <laughs> so we went in and um yeah, he loved it and he got it as well. You know, he understood, you know, what we were trying to make. And so, yeah, he commissioned it straight off the bat. So then we, we made the film um, and the response was fantastic. I mean, I, I'm, you, you know, normally with films I've made, you know, you read back in the paper, you get some lovely emails and, you know, get the reviews and it's really nice. But it's like Get Shirty didn't die. And there was this massive outpouring. And still now I get, you know, emails from people it's quite incredible i really you know had tapped into something i think what a lot of that is i think the last few years i mean myself and mike and this podcast mm. our audience we're all huge kit collectors football yeah. kit collectors and like you said admiral they were really at the pioneering in mm. this space they were the first brand to to manufacture replica shirts and to sell yeah. those to the masses so like you said this story really resonated it, mm. and i think it came out 2016, if I remember. That's right, yeah. So when that was released, I think football shirt collecting was having its real first explosion, where it right. had oh, become a bit more mainstream. And yeah, like you said, it resonated with a lot of the community and the people that myself and Mike would have interacted with. I mean, that's what you know struck me also was I went to um, the World Cup in 2014 in Brazil, and I just remember getting to the airport, and it was full of England fans, uh, sort of 20, 30 something England fans. And the number who had the 82 well, um, England shirt, I was astounded. It was like the most popular shirt on display. And then, you know, going to Leicester, you see the, the old pinstripes, the Admiral pinstripe shirts. It's really popular. You know, the, the, um, the score draw, you know, you know, sort of younger fans wear. And I find that, yeah, quite incredible, actually, that, you know, they're, they're those designs are, are sort of like design classics now, or, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of symbols of a golden age, I suppose, or, you know, um, golden period. Like Tom said, I think that us as football kit collectors, is, is, it's just something we can relate to. I think some of us grew up with Admiral kits, you know, when we were kids. I, I remember having sort of like non-club Admiral kits when I was a kid because wow. my, my family didn't necessarily have a lot of money for the newest kits. So we would yeah. have something maybe um, like that wasn't, you know, linked to a club. And I know that Admiral were one of the brands that you could buy quite a lot of like team wear for. And I know when I was a kid, I had some stuff like that. And like Tom said, personally, because I, I believe Tom's seen the, the documentary as well, mm. and so have I. I watched it during lockdown. That's when I discovered it. And I yeah. think, like like Tom says, I think 
one of the reasons I think people have discovered it is because of this explosion in football shirt collecting. Yeah. So the, someone that we know as Toy Toys on Twitter, you all know as Paris. Yeah. I found his account and then saw the link for the Get Shirty. And then right. just by pure luck, it was being shown on ITV one night. And I sat and I watched it and I was fascinated by the history. And and that's actually something that that I think a lot of people w- would would like to hear about because there's, there's a, a strange history to Admiral, isn't there? They never started out making football kits i don't want you to go into too much detail i want people to watch yeah i want people to read your book but do you mind giving people a little bit of that history where they started and interestingly since the documentary um i found out lots and lots more you know information i've spoken to a lot more people interviewed so the the backstory and the history lots more stuff has come to light which is good but just to give you a potted history 1902 that's really when there was a a small workshop sort of small factory started making uh, woolen underwear the big explosion for the company was the two wars first world war second world war they made um woolen long johns for the navy both for the british um, royal navy and also the american forces so that that carried on and then the into the 50s Oh, they, they were also making um, some very niche niche orders for nuns' underwear. Um, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, you know, when, when I interviewed John about it, he was still, you know, 40 years on, we're still embarrassed to talk about this. Uh, these nuns' knickers that used to go around and around the factory. <laughs> so, so they made these really sort of quite, um, yeah, sort of niche orders that were almost been made by hand. So the, so the profit margins, you know, they're massively expensive to make. So... What happened in the 50s, they started struggling as a firm. The orders had gone down. And that's when Bert sort of came in and took over the company. And around this time, so going into the 1960s, there was a sort of move, a popular culture move into leisure wear. So whereas before men would traditionally wear suits, collar and tie, the 60s comes along and people more like to wear a polo shirt. It's all more relaxed. So they started getting to the leisure wear. Fred Perry came to them because their breathable shirts they started making shirts for fred perry because the the camber machine they used for their underwear could be converted into polo shirts and that's how they got into leisure wear and their sorry sportswear and then the likes of umbro and buckter started coming to them and to fulfill their order so they you know they there's this obviously then with 1966 a massive explosion in football so the, all these football kits were being made and they were helping to produce football kits for buckter and umbro and then they got to a point where they could thought, well, we might as well go on our own. Mm. And that's when 1972, they came up with the Admiral label. Previously, they'd been known as Cook and Hearst, but they came up with their own sportswear label. And then they, and because they were supplying clubs already, then they started going them to directly and getting in. And it was mostly, it was mostly schools and amateur clubs at that point. They were providing um, professional clubs with kits, but again, it was usually, they were made in Wigston and Cook and Hearst, but they'd probably have an Umbro label in them. So they've been doing this and then they kind of struck out on their own. But all around that time, they were looking for a way to break in to professional clubs off their own bat. So the story goes is that one of the sales reps had been going out and he said a mother or somebody said to him, you know, my, my son wants a proper football shirt. I said, well, here you go. Here's a football shirt. No, no, a proper football shirt. Like the ones, you know, the players wear. I said, what do you mean with the badge? And, yeah, because at that time, my, my first football shirt in the early 70s was my dad went to the Army Navy stores and he got me um, a cotton shirt, with blue cotton shirt with a white collar and cuffs. And my mom sewed a badge onto it. That's and great. That was, <laughs> and that was it. So 
anyway, this sales rep came out and said, could we do that? So that's kind of, then they thought about, you know, that's the way they should go. Now, around this time, Umbro had already been looking at that themselves, but they didn't think there was any money in it because they didn't think that kids would be able to afford personalized shirts. The other thing that put them off is really, so if you're selling a generic red shirt, you can sell it to a Manchester United fan, a Liverpool fan, Bristol City fan, Nottingham Forest fan. If you've got a personalized shirt, they were worried that they would be left with lots of stock. Mm. So they were kind of steered clear. And then when Admiral went down this route of um, sponsoring Leeds initially, they thought they were going to go bust. And one of the um, Umbro um, sales um, directors actually said to me, said, they were just sitting back thinking, I'll give it six months. You know, they, this is non-sustainable. They're not going to, this, this will just blow up in their faces. And of course, in the documentary and in the book, I go into more detail, but um, a meeting happened with Leeds United. And um, yeah, they, they started sponsoring Leeds. Just should probably go back a little bit. So around that time, a couple of years before, the um, manufacturer's logos had just started appearing on the outside of shirts. But, you know, the likes of Umbro didn't pay sponsorship at that time. It was only when Admiral came in and they paid Leeds for the privilege of mm. producing this, um, this this kit. So, and then they redesigned them to make them individual and stop counterfeiting. Basically, is yeah. the uh, is where all these designs. But they, the thought, the the simple act of putting a couple of stripes on the shoulder or down the sleeve of a shirt was just revolutionary. I mean, mm. it's, as mad as it sounds, it just changed you know, that whole dynamic between supplier and club and supporter in an instant. And then, you know, once it started, once they got England, which was the next big um, coup, then it just snowballed and they just went after club after club after club. And then eventually Umbro uh, booked her, you know, after a couple of years, 76, 77, that's when they joined as well. And they started sponsoring clubs because, because basically clubs were saying, well, we want the sponsorship money. Mm. So that's kind of a very brief potted history of their heyday. I mean, so Leeds were the first connection that Admiral had made into the replica yeah. market, as she said. And then, of course, they were joined by other teams like Man United and Tottenham yeah. and Southampton initially in this country. Yeah. And of course, eventually they went overseas as well later down the line. But one of the periods I find most interesting yeah. with Admiral is their, their soiree over to the NASL in America. Because yeah. I adore those NASL kits, you know, the California Surf, the LA Aztecs. I just think, obviously, I wasn't around at that time, but they, they yeah. are just the height of cool, I think, especially in football oh. shows. They used to, and th- this is a story, not just something I experienced. It happened all around Leicestershire. So um, our local hardware store, Ralph's Hardware, and they used to sell factory seconds. So you'd go into uh, Ralph's Hardware and there'd be like this bucket bin and you'd always pull out that. Uh, a Norwich shirt or a Southampton shirt, never a Leicester shirt. <laughs> Always, you know. And we used to buy them because they're Admiral and they've got a badge on. And so we used to run around in these you know, Crystal Palace shirts. So all the kids at school had all these shirts because they were fantastic. And then word went round that there were some new shirts in Ralph's Hardware. So we bombed down there and you go in and suddenly you're putting out a shirt that says Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> Tampa Bay Rowdy. It was just extraordinary. So then, next thing you've got kids running around it, and all this, and you collect them. You know, I think they cost That's incredible. I mean, how much were they? How much did they cost at that time? Do you remember? Yeah. So, well, from Ralph's, they were like fifty p, I think, or a quid, I think. 
to buy. So if you wanted, um, say, an England shirt, a proper England shirt, you were looking at five pounds at least. Okay, so quite a markup. It was an extraordinary amount of money, five pounds. They were so expensive at that time. So they were beyond the price of most, I mean, certainly our family and, you know, most families. They were hugely popular, but at the same time, they were massively expensive. Um, And what's interesting, and I put this in the book, is whereas now, you know, with the internet, you can pretty much get um, something that looks very similar, or something that's counterfeited or, but then there was nothing else. You know, there was a real Admiral shirt and there was nothing else and you couldn't get access unless you got access to Ralph's hardware. But besides, <laughs> that, besides that, there wasn't anything else around. Nothing else will do. You know if it's real or not. And you know, when you're a kid, that's such a big deal, isn't it? Mm. You know. It's and the same now. Crazy. It's exactly the same now. It's the same yeah. when I was a kid. I'm sure it's the same. Mike, yeah. got uh, uh, yeah, I was going to say the same. I've got, I mean, even us as, as collectors, if it's not the real thing, we're just not interested. Um, yeah. But myself, yeah, for, for my kids, I, I I want them to have the real thing. And, so, and it, there's just something better about it the, when, when you know it's legit, it's the real thing. I've got, I got a question I, I want to ask you, though. As a yeah, Leicester fan, does that mean yeah. inevitably those those Admiral Leicester shirts are your favourite of all time? Not necessarily. No, you know, so the first Admiral shirt, the one with the epaulets, you know, that that was weird, wasn't it? I mean, that, <laughs> that was an odd shirt. Yeah, I remember it, I felt pretty underwhelmed because I really, you know, when I heard that they were going to get a, an Admiral shirt, I was thinking, great, I'm going to have logo taping. I, you know, you look at the Spurs shirt, you think, wow. And then to see that, it was a little bit puzzling. Yeah. And, and there's Rob O'Donnell, who's one of the shirt collectors who appears in the documentary. He said that when he first saw the advert, he thought it was little fox heads along the uh, along the epaulets it's only when he got it actually close he saw it was the little admiral logo so so that one yeah that was a little underwhelming i'll be honest um i mean i always my dream would have been if they'd have had a tram lines a leicester tram lines that would have been like fantastic. coventry like the coventry shirts yeah because yeah. i think that is an amazing design and that it, was it was and also the tracksuits it was just extraordinary to have something that colourful. Looking back now, you can see the influence. Bert was heavily influenced by um, American sports at that time. So they had a lot of razzmatazz in America. And, you know, they had, um, you know, it's like, it's like Elvis appearing in Vegas in a, in a jumpsuit or Evil Knievel. <laughs> it's, it's funny because those LA Aztec shirts, that's what they remind me of. I mean, I know they had George Best out there rocking them, which is not a bad model to have, but they do look like Elvis suits, you know, the stereotypical Elvis suit, yeah. They do. And what we found during the, um, the research for the book was we found a Port Vale kit. Now, it doesn't appear in any... So got most of got access to most of the brochures. Um, and we found this Port Vale, it doesn't appear anywhere, but it's a Port Vale Admiral kit. And it looks like a, a baseball shirt. You know, those baseball shirts with the stripes. Or it looks like something Elton John would have worn on stage <laughs> in 1974 or something like that. They, so they kind of, they didn't care in many ways. You know, they, and this goes back to a point with Lindsay, you know, they wanted to be more outrageous to generate more sales. They wanted to make noise. I mean, there was the, you know, the whole thing about uh, counterfeiting to kids sorry uh, avoid counterfeiting but they also wanted to make it, them appealing to kids and you know kids love that sort of stuff anything you know that looks colorful and is flashy um so that did put them on a collision course with some clubs 
and there were one or two battles that Lindsay talked to us about, which which is hilarious. There was always always this sort of creative tension between you know manufacturer well between Admiral and uh, the Bordering. I think we should talk about some of the the hits then that we yeah. just we brought up some of the NASL ones, the NASL yeah. ones. We've briefly mentioned Coventry. Now, yeah. is in your opinion, Andy, is it a hit or is it a miss? Because it does split opinion. The the brown shirt, the away shirt. Sorry, I should the yeah, the nineteen eighty brown chocolate brown. I I don't like it. Um, <laughs> one one of the things that so Neville um, Chadwick, who was the photographer, he said that the first time he went to cover it was a night game at Highfield Road, and he said it was a nightmare because under floodlights it just disappeared. You couldn't actually see it. Um, and I remember at the time it, you know, it was very derided. You know, I, I love the design itself. I think it's great, but I think the choice of color. But there is a there is a really good story behind the brown kit. Um, and I can't reveal too much. It's all in the book. But the brown so the brown kit was destined for another another club. Ooh. And it was seemed like it was all agreed. And then when the club saw the prototypes, they backed out. But unfortunately, John Griffin had bought reams and reams of brown material. <laughs> so he then had to get on the phone. So he did a ring round and he went to, he went to Leicester, he went to Sheffield United and they turned him down. There were other clubs as well. And then he had a conversation with Jimmy Hill and uh, yeah, Jimmy accepted it after an argument. If there was going to be anyone that accepted it, it was going to be Jimmy Hill, wasn't there? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, he was one of the great, you know, one of the game's great innovators as well. You know, so I think, you know, that's to his credit. It, it was more to do with um, payments and the fact that he found that other clubs were getting more than Coventry. <laughs> so, <laughs> so John had to sort of increase the, uh, the the payments for him to accept it. I think it still does split opinion, actually. I think yeah. for me, it's a it's a classic, you know, because it's yeah. so alien. Yes. And I mean, it's worked wonders for Coventry, like you said, because... That design, not not necessarily the colour, but that tramline design has come back with a yeah. bang this year. Yeah, and I mean, Mike, we both know a collector, big Coventry fan, and they're a huge success, huge, huge yeah. success. I, I think actually, now you say that, Tom, when what what we do on this this podcast is we quite regularly review and talk about the kits that have been released, and the Coventry one, like revisiting the tramlines with Hummel this year. What I did was I went on to sort of like the Coventry fan base, and I was having a little look right. around at what they were saying. And funnily enough, the brown one came up so much. There was a there was a lot of people saying, "Well, are we going to get a brown away then?" Because I'd really like to see that again. So I really wow. do think that there is a surprising amount of people that that do do like that brown kit and they do hold it in quite high regard. Wow, I did hear one story. So after the documentary went out, um, the following weekend, chat to a friend. And he said one of his workmates had gone into the once the dot went out, a Coventry supporter had gone into the loft saying, I've got a player issue brown shirt in the loft, <laughs> went in and found it. And apparently he won it at a um, he'd been to a charity dinner in the in the 70s or 80s and, you know, bought it. And then it had just been in the loft ever since. I mean, just talking about a shirt that we've already mentioned, that 1982, I mean, that's probably, would you say, the pinnacle of Admiral's design work in football, the England 82 kit? Yeah, I would say so. Controversial at the time. Um, but yeah, it's. I remember the time it was really popular with, 
I think I was about what I've been about 16 at the time. I just remember a couple of mates started buying it with their first pay packets. And remember seeing, I was so jealous because it, it was just fantastic. When you saw it up close for real, it was just wonderful. But I remember the, the flack at the time was, and I, I mentioned this in the book, um, I've researched, the, you know, gone through the paper and um, different reports about it. I was scathing. But what's interesting, I spoke to, uh, lent to Paul Oakley, who was the designer. He was a, a, is a, a brand specialist who came up with the design. And around that time, because people used to say, well, why, you know, why are England wearing the colours of the Union flag? And around that time, it was the early 80s, there was a lot of flag waving in terms of the politics going on, in terms of the Thatcher government, um, things like Brideshead Revisited, um, Chariots. And there was a lot of sort of British symbolism going on. Uh, you know, there was the Falklands War. So that all kind of fed into what was the messaging that was all this subliminal messaging that was going on now. Um, I mean, now, you know, you go to an England game and it's the cross of St. George. But back then it was very hmm. much the Union flag, which was, you know, there's a, you know, a very different mindset. There is a story. Um, the shirt almost never got to Lancaster Gate. So one of the young guys entrusted to take the kit down to um, to London, to Lancaster Gate, right on his own, you know, 17 years old, in a van, driving along down the A6, and then suddenly hears of this, uh, the back doors open in the van, pulls over and stretched down the A6 were all these different kits, these <laughs> kits that were supposed to be... <laughs> and, anyway, he sort of runs back, you know, collects them from the hedgerows, and, he, and he, I said to him, you know, did you get them? I says, I think so. And you've never been seen before, it was all top secret. But that's what so at that time, that's what the business was like. It was very amateurish. And that's not a criticism. It's just how it was. Um, I think some brands are still like that, to be honest. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. You could buy a shirt and not see it for six months. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, if you get the, you know, the England contract, it's such a huge thing that you'd entrust. And then uh, Sean Patrick, who's um, Bert's son, he also told me he, went, he delivered another set down. It's the same thing. It was him and his mate, and I think they were 17 years old, driving to London for the very first time. <laughs> you know, had a mini metro pack full of cardboard boxes. Off you go, lads. Yeah, just drive down, see ya. <laughs> they said he was terrified. That 82 kit in particular, I think it, it it's one that I think everybody thinks of. I, I think for me, I, if I think of Kevin, Kevin Keegan, I think yeah. of that shirt. Yeah, I don't absolutely. think of Newcastle. I don't think of Liverpool. I think yeah. of that shirt. And I think that its influence on today's shirts is still quite clear as well. I mean, when when in the New England shirts were all being bounded around, people mm. were, were regularly referring back to that shirt to yeah. say, can't we have one influenced by this? And I think that, to, uh, on that note, bringing it kind of into where Admiral are now, mm. obviously they're, n they're not doing as many football clubs, but even that shirt, I, I think before we were recording, you you mentioned the Jam collaboration that yeah. Admiral there. And obviously that's all based around those 82 shirts. There's some unbelievable clothes yeah. that that are all based around that shirt and people still want it and they'll still buy it. And I think it now has become probably one of the most timeless designs we've That's, ever known in football. It's a design classic. And then there's a, um, a Japanese um, side who've got a pale blue version. Have you seen that? It's yeah. Jubilo Iwata. So they're, they're yeah. they've got four kits based off that design yeah. from Admiral this season. They're so popular, aren't they, Mike? I don't know yeah. anyone. Oh, I know one person that has one. Right. Okay. They're, they're a huge draw that's what was brilliant about admiral is you know they wanted to make a difference and they pushed that you know that was behind the whole ethos that they wanted to you know make noise they had to be different 
it's interesting because when color television came along in the early 70s that was kind of like the catalyst for for this really it's kind of hard to um I'll just give an example so one of my um the first football game i went to was 1974 and i remember two things about it well three if you count leicester lost but um the, the other two <laughs> things i remember about it was uh, clyde best uh, who was one of the few black players at that time scored the goal but he put it past shilton so shilton was wearing all white at that time and again it was admiral who introduced that and it just stood out and it was extraordinary and everything was so sort of anodyne and quite bland at that time but they you know made a mark they made a difference you know having a you know a goalkeeper dressed all in white was it's extraordinary again you know we're kind of used to sort of single color kits now but um at the time it was just it was revolutionary that early 70s was the tipping point really um and then obviously you know the, the rest is history in terms of where we are now We, we've spoken about the, the documentary film that you made for ITV. Yeah. And of course, the, the big news at the moment is this book that you've written yeah. is going to be coming out. So perhaps you could tell us how that came to fruition and, and yeah. when we can see that on the shelves. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so again, it all came together at once was after the dot went out, I thought about writing a book and I'd written a couple of chapters, got a, uh, there was a literary agent I sent a couple of chapters to, and then it all just went quiet for a, a few years. And during lockdown, I thought, well, you know what? I think I'm going to write that book. You know, there is the opportunity here. And then as I was thinking about doing that, a friend of mine contacted me and he was doing a producer. He was doing development work for a drama company. And he said, would Get Shirty make a good drama? I was like, absolutely. You know, make it'd be like Kinky Boots, Made in Dagenham. It would, you know, it's better drama than documentary because it's a great story. So I thought, okay. So we, we worked on this um this document together, this uh, this pitch document. So I thought, well, I definitely need to write this book now because if it's going to be a drama, I, I do need to write this book. And the other thing I had was when I set out to make the documentary, because I didn't have funding and I didn't have a commission, I thought I would make a feature length doc. I thought it would make a, a 90 minute doc that I put through festivals. So I interviewed lots of people, people, you know, some people not around anymore. So I had this wealth of archive material and I, there's some great stories and I, and we, you know, 46 minutes in the dock, we just couldn't get them all in. So I had this amazing resource. And of course my initial instinct was, you know, just do write something quite functionary, make sure I get it out and just tell the story. Because once you get into these things, you know, you start meeting other people and talking to other people and then you're finding out different things you end up and it's the story grows and grows and grows. And, you know, it, we touched on the, um, on the documentary, but we kind of go more into the social history of how Leicester ended up as a, a textiles hub. And then what happened with deindustrialization and, you know, the collapse of the industry, the collapse of Admiral. Um, and it's all sort of through that, I kind of weave, it's quite personal because I, I was living there at the time. And I realized there's lots of different crossovers with my own life, what was going on at, at the time at Admiral, you know, we wear my first kit and um, friends who worked in the knitwear industry, losing their jobs. So it kind of, came about like that really and then um i went with a publisher called conquer who you might know the guys they do uh, got not got so they you know they they were quite crucial to this really because they make their books with a lot of love and a lot of care and i wanted the book 
to be illustrated. I wanted it to be about popular culture. I wanted it to be about music. So we're drawing a lot of stuff. So it's, it's, it's very vibrant, the book. It's, it's brilliantly illustrated. Gary's done a fantastic job. And yeah, the, the book reflects the documentary. You know, it's a lot of fun. It's a celebrate, ultimately it's a celebration of, of, of Admiral and that, that time and, and those kids, but also going a little bit deeper into the story. So um, yeah, the, the book comes out 14th of September. Um, it's available to pre-order at the moment from Conquer. And then, you know, we've, we've got great hopes for it, really. You know, we hope it resonates with a lot of people. Um, and it's not just about the 70s and 80s. We do, uh, towards the end, we do sort of bring it up to date with what's going on now. Senior execs from the company uh, from the time said, you know, whenever they go to a football match now, uh, you know, if you go to a cup final or you go to an international match, you see, you know, that it's, it's almost compulsory that people wear shirts and that, you know, they, they kind of blows their mind in many ways. So that uh, the other thing I told Lindsay about was the reissues and she was incredulous, you know, about the, all the, um, you know, people going around to the, the remakes of, of stuff she's designed. See, that's Which, interesting because again, there's split opinions amongst collectors, but yeah, you kind of get purists almost and the reissues are not, it's, it's almost like, it's not a done thing. And it's yeah. interesting to hear Lindsay say that she's also not a fan of those. So it's almost from the horse's mouth that it, it hurts the the origin, you know, of where these shirts come from. If you look at those early shirts, they are they're handcrafted almost. Well, they were they were made by hand, and some of the player issue ones they they've got um, you know the different seams and the different panels. It's like something you'd buy from a craft store. It's extraordinary, you know, and they were quite limited in terms of, you know, they tell this story about the stripes that they could do, was it, they could do hoops and then they would have to turn the machinery around to do stripes. It would, it, so the machinery actually limited what they could do, but, but beautifully made. And that's the other thing that comes across from them all is they were so proud about the, uh, the work and the quality of the work that they weren't just knocking this stuff out, that they, they actually had um, two teams and they had this um, this group of machinists who worked on the players' shirts, and they were top of the rank. They were like the best machinists in the factory. And then the other machinists worked on the on the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they they should be proud as well because you know, at my hobby, Mike, your hobby, mm. listeners to this podcast, our hobby, it all stems from this story that that you're telling in the documentary and in the book. And yeah, those admiral kits unfortunately i don't have one that's pre-90s in my collection and it would be a grail of mine you know it's a, it's a term we loathe to use but yeah. a, a grail shirt is one of these admiral shirts that we're talking about so you know it's a legacy that they've left and it's still being felt now so it's a it's a good story to tell Excellent. and the, the one thing i would add to that as well is i would implore anybody to try and go and watch the documentary as well because I do think it was genuinely fascinating. I think you, when you watch it, you become immersed in this this origin story of something that, as Tom's just said, has has led to the the, the biggest hobby in, in all of our lives in this little community that we've got. And I think if anybody listening hasn't watched it, just find it somewhere and watch it. I watched it on ITV. I'm sure it's available somewhere. Just watch it. And then, yeah, buy the book, obviously, as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's um, it's it, what is also extraordinary is if you if you are ever are in Wigston, is pop along to the the old factory because what's in quite incredible is the modest size of it, and when you see it, you think, wow, 
it, it's amazing that you know this industry's billion pound industry was kind of generated from within those wars and uh, bert said at the time you know he Ad, um, adidas didn't realize how small they were and they were you know it's a backstreet factory and it, it is it, it's more amazing actually that they um you know they achieved what they did and um, you know more power to them a great pilgrimage to bit to make that would be and uh i'll certainly go with that that bucket of nasl shirts is still still <laughs> lingering <laughs> sadly i don't think ralph is around anymore but <laughs> i think ralph is a bookies now when i, when I went past uh, it uh, no we don't we won't go there we won't go there <laughs> thank you so much for joining us andy thank that was guys. a really really great chat yeah. and like i said keep in touch because we'd love to be able to share the book once that's out on the 14th of september and we wish you all the best with that right thanks guys Really great interview, guys. Really, really enjoyed that. Can I make a small confession? Go for it. Admiral Kits just remind me of PE uniforms from when I was at school. <laughs> you know what? I, I think I think they're an acquired taste, to be fair. Um, I think that the thing with Admiral, as as we talked about a lot in, in the interview, I think Admiral is more, it's more about the impact they had on, on shirts. And I think without what Admiral did, in their, you know, the the, the boom of the, of the the replica football shirt, if you like, we wouldn't have the market for football shirts that we have today. It's as simple as that. They were pioneers, and they they put everything in place for this nerdy little hobby that we all have now. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think the, the 1982 England shirt is, I think, the best England shirt we've ever had. And like I said when I was speaking speaking to Andy, those NASL shirts, you know, like. Uh, the Rowdies and, and the Cosmos, I love them. I absolutely love them. I just think they're absolutely great. And yeah, they, I, I wish I had some. I don't have any, but I wish I had some. So Get Shirty, brilliant documentary. Tom, what's the name of that book again? And when's it out? It is called Get Shirty, The Rise and Fall of Admiral. And I believe it's out on the 14th of September, which is this Wednesday. And also just before we carry on, Andy has been kind enough to offer us one copy to give away to one of our listeners. So keep your eyes peeled on the socials and we'll let you know how to enter to get your hands on that book. Great stuff. Brilliant. Right. On to this week's quiz. Let's see if I can get any higher pitch on the next bit. <laughs> So because this week I've been too lazy to come up with a good kit history, I thought I would dig into my little archive of quizzes that I didn't use when we did the quiz episode a a little while back. And one of the rounds that we did on there, I very, very weakly gave some name that was comparable to some 90s game show, but it was based around squad numbers. And I think it was one that was a bit of a favourite. So... I'm going to throw that one at you two, which you both look thrilled about. So I've already decided that AD is going to go first because I just picked him first. And you are going to be guessing the squad numbers, or more specifically, if the, the following is higher or lower than the previous, of the France 98 World Cup winning squad. So I'll tell you the first one and the number. And then, AD, I will give you the next player and you have to say if his squad number was higher or lower. I'm going to give you two lives each on this one because otherwise it could be over really, really quickly. Um, but basically, just so you know, the reputation of the pod is on the line if you don't get all of them. Right. So first is 
Thierry Henry with number 12. And following on, we've got Lillian Turam. Was his squad number higher or lower than 12? Ooh la la. So I went out in straight goes on this last time we did this on the quiz. Uh, Lillian Turam, great right back. Number two, I know he scored in the semi, wasn't it, against Croatia? Assume he's starting. Was he starting from the outset? I'm going to go lower. I'm going to think he was number two. You're going to tell me I'm, I'm wrong. That is a life lost immediately. He is higher. He came, he was squad number 15. Great. Right. So, Tom, this one, you may have to dig deep into the depths of your brain to remember this player. This is Lionel Chabonnier. He's a goalkeeper, wasn't he? Well remembered, he was. So, I think he will be higher. You are correct. He was higher. He wore number 22, if he ever wore it, let's face it. (laughs) Only in training. (laughs) Yeah. So the next player to come out is Emmanuel Petit. Higher or lower than 22? He didn't start, did he? He wasn't a starter. Um, Lower. He was lower. He was 17. So you're still in it just about. Right. So from number 17 with Petit, we go to Didier Deschamps. Uh, I'm sure he was lower. I think he was seven, wasn't he? He was lower and he he was number. That's that. Yeah, that's actually quite impressive. He was number seven. (laughs) So we go from number seven with Deschamps to Yuri Zhurkaev. Lower, number six. You you call him out for knowing the (laughs) score. I knew it was a low number. I was sure it was five or six. Right. So from Jorge Evan, number six, we go to Fabian Bartes. Oh, he was. This is a trick question because he wasn't number one, I don't think. Was he 12? I'm going to go higher. Higher is correct, but he was number 16. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Henri 12. Yeah. Great number. So from Bartes, <laughs> we go to <laughs> Bernard Diomedi. The left winger for Liverpool. Lower. It was lower. He wore 13. So, from DMED with 13, we go to Frank Leboeuf. Oh, good old Frank. Which, whilst you're thinking, am I right that that translation just means Frank the Beef? Yeah, I think it's it. Does. <laughs> I mean, what a name. So, he definitely wasn't a starter. He only played the final because Blanc was suspended, which makes me think he was higher. Is that your final answer? Yeah. He was higher. It was 18. So from 18, we go to David Trezeguet. He was young, wasn't he? What number did we say Henri was? Like 14? Henri was 12. 12, definitely higher than that. What was the number? Leboeuf was Leboeuf Le was 18, uh, yeah? 18, yeah. yeah. I'll go higher, I'm guessing. He was higher. He wore number 20. So Trezeguet, 20. Next up is Vincent Candela. Oh, that's, hor- that's an horrible one. I'm trying to think what we've already had. I think, do you know what I'm going to risk? I think he, he's higher than 20 because I don't think he'd be in the top first 11. I think you're wrong because if Turan wasn't number two, it surely it's Candela. It wouldn't take two right back. You, uh, I, I, I'm going to have to take Tom's answer as final. Yeah, higher. You are spot on, AD. He's wrong. <sighs> it was like lower. <laughs> And he did indeed wear number two. So you're 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 level peg in here. Oh, yeah. Let let let's pretend that there's a bit of element of doubt in this one. Oh. I'll, I'll read the player. <laughs> so number two, Candela to Alan Bogassian or B- Bogossian, Sorry, uh, are you, are you definitely going higher than two. Yeah. I know. He, I know. I think there was a number one on his shirt. Um, 
but now I'm going to get higher. He was higher. It was 14. Oh, right. Uh, Smack bang in the fucking middle for me. Welcome to my life. Yeah, don't get too excited yet, AD. So from Alan Bogossian, we go to Bernard Lamar, the third goalkeeper of the squad. (laughs) Wait, the third goalkeeper? We've had the other two, and they were 16 and 22. So he's got to be number one. So lower. It was number one. It is lower. (laughs) I've turned into Scotty. Like, this is how it went for Scotty in the last game. Higher. (laughs) Um, yeah, right. So from number one, you're so you, I guess you're going to go higher. Yeah. So Vicente Lizarazu. So I'm guessing you're going to go higher. Hopefully, yeah. that's about number fourteen, number fifteen, <laughs> something like that. That'd be ideal. Uh, no, it was higher than one, but it's actually only number three. So where are you going to go from there, Tom? Uh, higher. <laughs> so, uh, let, let let me tell you who it is first. Let's at least make it a game. Uh, Laurent Blanc. Aye, was he was he five? He was five. So I think, unfortunately for you two, it gets a bit tastier from here on. So uh, Laurent Blanc, number five, to Robert Perez. Higher, he's going to be like 11, isn't he? He is number 11. So from Perez with 11, we've got Christian Carambo. Bastards. <laughs> Not Zidane <laughs> or fucking... Ah, <laughs> oh, Christian Carambo. I'm trying to think what we've got left. We haven't had 19 yet, I don't think. So he could be 19, or he could be four. Who was the other centre-back? It's horrible. No, no, lower. I'm going to go lower. So you're going lower than 11, and you are wrong. He was oh. indeed nine. He was 19. You should have gone with your gut instinct. So from Christian Karamba, number 19, we go to Zinedine Zidane. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I'm just going to take 10 as a lower answer and say, yes, that's correct. So from Zidane, we go to Patrick Vieira. I'm out, aren't I? Oh, hang on. Yeah, you were. That was it. Yeah, no, my bad. Sorry. <laughs> I, I was getting carried away then. I was thinking, hey, we're going to complete it. <laughs> so, I shouldn't have said to, anything. <laughs> no, you, to be fair, you, you did quite well. Um, the only players left were Vieira, who was number four. Um, then we had Stefan Givash. Anyone have a guess what number he was? Nine. It was number nine, yeah. And then we have Marcel Desailly. Eight. It was eight. And then the last player in the squad was Christophe Dugary. So was he 21? He was 21. Oh, I, I, I got lucky there, Tom. That's I, the yeah. hardest one in there. Well, <laughs> I, I, I think you both done well, mainly because you both actually called some of the numbers as you were going through as well. And not just the easy ones, you called a couple of the tricky ones out of the bag. So that wasn't bad. I went through the Scott method of last time. I was writing down the numbers that had gone as we did it. <laughs> Good stuff. Enjoyed looking like a twat again. Thanks, Mike. Um, great quiz, Mike. Can history be back next week? Is uh, Mrs. Footy Shirt going to come up with another team? It definitely will. Um, as much as I say I was lazy, I'm, I'm going to say that she didn't help me this week. So, yeah, it'll definitely be back next week. I'll bring it back with a bang. Can't wait. Until then, let's move on to Shirt Room 101. I give up. An absolute disgrace. I am flabbergasted. Analyse it for the coach come home. Shocking. I am. I am disgusted with it. Hello, hello, hello. It's me again. Kit Room. Kit, I don't know my own name. It's Kitted Out Ollie. I uh, hope we're all well. Um, Another another Kit Room 
101 thing that I wouldn't to, to, to banish from the godforsaken site that is Twitter um, is uh, having more than one Holy Grail shirt. My, my brother in Christ, do you know what ho- Holy Grail means? You can't have more than one. Bye. So, gentlemen, and a reminder to all, this is just for fun. What are we saying? I'll go first. Um, well, I, I get where he's coming from because, like, you know, the whole sort of like idea of a Holy Grail is like a, you know, a, a one-off. But the Holy Grail was also something that was completely unattainable. So all I'm going to say is I think that for me, for example, my Holy Grail may change once I've got one shirt and I realise another shirt may be more obtainable than I originally thought. Um, I'd say that I think you can have more than one Grail shirt. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I, 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 yeah, no, I, I, can't, I can't go along with just having one. Sorry, Ollie. I See, I actually agree with Ollie because we've all seen Indiana Jones, haven't we? There's only one Holy Grail. We all saw what happened when they made more and more Indiana Jones films. We, no one wanted <laughs> to see him in his 60s going for that Holy Grail. So, no, there's one. That's the whole point. There's Indiana Jones and the One Holy Grail. Do, do, do you still agree with Ollie if you remember he's a Man City fan? Well, that does muddy the waters a little bit, but we'll have to bypass that, I think. Hmm. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because it's um, I understand what it means and, and why people use the terminology. But yeah, I guess if we've been completely if we're being completely picky about it then there was only one grail holy grail apparently so you should only have one shirt that is a holy grail but i don't understand the spirit of how people mean it maybe we just need to come up with another word i just, i really don't know where i stand on this um 10 words each give me why you should or shouldn't go in room 101 mike 10 10 words why it shouldn't go in room 101 because i don't think so and ollie is a weirdo tom 10 reasons what in 10 words why it should go in room 101 you need an end goal despite being man city (laughs) (laughs) right it's not going in room 101 it is really really annoying it gets really annoying you see it on your feed about five times a day it's annoying but I know what people mean by it, and I don't want to take the fun out of collecting. Um, so, yeah, look, we're going to keep it out. You've just consigned poor Harrison Ford to be going in and out of those temples till his dying day. I hope you know that. That was a different version of Indiana Jones you're watching, mate, where he's going in and out of temples. <laughs> <laughs> What's that, Raiders of the... <laughs> the Lost Crack. <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. That concludes another week of the Football Show. We hope you've enjoyed it. Gents, who wants to wrap up? Thank you so much for all the support you're giving us, guys, on Twitter, on Instagram. And we do have a TikTok account now as well, so check that out if you're inclined. Um, Please keep an eye on the the social media threads because we have our highlighted threads that go out every week. We have Wednesday, which is the team in focus. And then Saturday, we have the player history, kit history. And on Fridays, we like to put a little collector's tips and tricks thread together for everyone. So... Please do keep interacting and keeping in touch and let us know if you want to get involved. I think it's all over. It is now.